James. We're going to look at a few verses at the beginning of the book of James this morning. Uh, this morning's message is called Pursuing Wisdom, parentheses, don't be an idiot. Everybody found James? All right, good deal. Um, yeah, let's, let's, read, uh, let's read the first eight verses together. Or I'll read, you follow along with me, okay? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. See, it's a letter. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind, and that man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all that he does. Father, we ask this morning that you would help us and you would help that kid. And Father, we ask that you would, uh, that you would open up our hearts to your word this morning and that you'd allow us to, um, to be transformed. Holy Spirit, you are so welcome here. Amen. 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 I have to tell you guys, this is one of those passages in the Scripture. It's sort of a um, sort of home base for me and Heather. Ever since we got married, this has been home base for us. Um, these probably first eight verses. Um, if, if for no other reason, and some of you guys who are married know what I'm talking about, uh, the amount of trouble in your life goes up when you get married. It, it multiplies, you know? It, marriage is great. I'm a huge fan of it. I, I believe in it. I think people should get married. Heather? And I think that people should enjoy marriage. But your, your troubles just multiply. And so this has always been a bit of a home base for us. Um, and so that's where a lot of what I, I'm going to have to say comes from this morning. But before I get to it, I, I, wanna, I just want to share one thing with you guys. It has absolutely nothing to do with my message. Is it okay? Can we just do a rabbit trail up front? Okay, so I'm in my office yesterday. And I'm just meditating on this word. Just hanging out with the Holy Spirit. And I got rocked by verse 1. Any, anyone ever been rocked by verse 1 in an epistle? Typically not, right? Yeah, I, I barely climbed off the carpet yesterday. Yeah, this is an utter rabbit trail. It has nothing to do with what we're talking, but it's just so good. I had to share it with you. Um, tradition holds that James was the half-brother of Jesus. So the James that wrote this letter was the half-brother of Jesus, okay? And look how he begins the letter. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I got it so messed up. You know how he didn't start this letter? He didn't start this letter. Hey, guys, my name is James, the half-brother of Jesus. I'm the apostle in Jerusalem. Get in line because that's what I said, and because he's my brother, he'll kick your butt. Somehow, this guy had... I'm still getting messed up just thinking about it. Somehow, James had, had hit something, and his identity wasn't even in the fact that Jesus was his half-brother. It was in the fact that he is yet a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't know, man, if that's true for James, then how much truer for you and I? Amen? Amen. Yeah. What, what does it mean to have Jesus be your half-brother, but really when you write your letter, it's just, 
I'm just a servant of God, and I'm just a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's just such a good word. All right, let's get into the text here. Verse 2. James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers. Um, by the way, we're going we're gonna to try to camp out in verse 5, but I, I need to work to get there. Is that okay? We're, hit, we're, we're headed toward verse 5, which is pursuing wisdom, don't be an idiot. So we've got to get there. So verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. How many of you realize that verse 2 is a bothersome verse? James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Um, The thing that he didn't say was, consider it pure joy, my brothers, if you face trials of many kinds. The reason he didn't say if is because trouble is guaranteed in life. It's actually, it's actually, it's been inserted into the matrix. You can guarantee it. Jesus said, in this life you'll have many troubles, right? Um, So he's not saying, you know, if you have troubles, he's saying when you have troubles. And I don't know about you guys, but I have had trouble. I, I had trouble this week. Probably you did as well. And James is laying out for us, he's laying out for us the kind of life that we can live. You know, he's not saying if you have trouble, he's saying when you have trouble. How many of you guys ever have car trouble? Uh, see, here, this is what I found. I'm 32 years old. After 32 years, I found that the kind of trouble I hate most is car trouble. I'd rather fight with my wife for a week than have car trouble, you know? Uh, this has been my experience because when one car breaks you go and you get it fixed it's always more than you think it's going to be and God only knows if they actually did anything because I'm not mechanical I don't know I mean they they tell me that they fixed it they they tell me that they've done things and and they show me parts in the in the garage I have no idea if that even came off my car (laughs) you know and you write them a check it's never less my car trouble's never been less than 300 bucks never and it's usually seven eight you know and then typically what happens is, after you get that car fixed, the other car breaks. And you're back to the same dude who shows you more parts, probably the same parts he showed you the last time. <laughs> yeah, in this life you're going to have trouble. You know, your car's going to break. After you get it fixed, your other car's going to break. Not only that, but you're going, to, you're going to write out your mortgage check, and you're going to drop it in the, in, the, in the night deposit box. You know, you guys know what those are? At the bank, you drop them, you drop that payment in, it's, you know, you just barely made it on the date, and you drop it in, and then, and then, um, beca- then you, two weeks later, you look online, and you check your account balance, and your account balance is like $1,000 more than, you, than it normally would be, and, and you go like, wow, this is great, and because you never balance your checkbook, you go ahead and you spend that $1,000 on things that you shouldn't, and then on the day that you spend the $1,000 on the things that you shouldn't, the bank sends you a, a note that says, hey, you didn't pay your mortgage, we'd like to have that. I, I'm just speaking from personal experience. I never balance my checkbook. That's happened to me lots of times. Yeah, in this life, you're going to have trouble. Now, here's the crazy thing. I've been using just crazy examples about car trouble and the bank losing your mortgage and spending money that you shouldn't have. When James wrote this letter, he was writing it to people who were being like persecuted, you know? All things being equal, in this life you're going to have trouble. And then James goes on to say, he says, you know, consider it pure joy. And so to make matters worse, James says that we should consider it pure joy. 
And when I read that, at least when I first started reading it, I thought, this has got to be a translation error. Some scribe, a hundred years after James wrote this, came in and he changed the scripture so he could terrorize the church for millennia. He said, consider it pure joy when you face, many tr- when, when you face trials of many kinds. Some guy just came in and he erased something and he inserted a couple words and now the church is tormented until Jesus comes back. I went and talked to Dr. John about it and he said that in fact... That was the original translation, and that we just have to deal with it. But a couple things we need to look at here before we get to verse 5. When James says, consider it pure joy when you face all kinds of trials, when you're in all kinds of trouble and your credit card's maxed out, really what he's getting at is, is something that's really powerful, and it's something I've only slowly begun to learn. And it's that joy is an option in every situation. Joy is always available. Joy is always available. Like, like when, 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 a, when a family member unexpectedly dies, joy is still available. Like when, when you have absolutely no money, joy is available. When your kids are going bonkers, joy is available. <clears throat> when you made two Fs, joy is still available. Not only that, but joy is a fruit of the Spirit, and it's a fruit of the Spirit that exists outside of the realm of circumstances. You see, happiness is always connected to circumstances. Joy exists outside of the realm of circumstances. Not only that, but the battle for joy begins in the mind. James says, consider it pure joy. In other words, think about it as pure joy. So the battle for joy always begins in the mind. Not only that, but every spiritual battle that everyone in the room faces, everyone has battles, everyone has trials, everyone has trouble. Every spiritual battle, every, every, every desire to move into the fruit of the Spirit, every, every desire to move into uh, the life of the Spirit, the battle, for that, the battle for that kind of life begins in the mind. And it, it begins in choice. It's why the Scriptures compel us to have to it's why the, the scriptures compel us to have our minds renewed this is what it means to have your mind renewed it means to think heaven's thoughts it means to live your life from from heaven's priority it means to live your life from heaven's perspective it's why the scriptures say again you know take every thought captive see the battle for joy begins in our mind All spiritual battles begin in the mind. This is why it's so desperately important that we feed ourselves on good stuff. Okay? Now let me, let me just insert some, some pastoral admonition. And let me just, before I do that, let me say that this is a guilt-free zone. Or as Will Ferrell says, this is a bummer-free zone. Yeah. It's, it's why the battle for joy, the battle for the life of the Spirit, it begins in the mind and it begins in choice, taking every thought captive, having our minds renewed. And, and it's why it's so desperate that we, that we really feed ourselves on the good stuff. And by good stuff, I mean, it's why it's so important that we feed ourselves on the Word of God. Like, you know, don't be surprised you're like whacked out and depressed. You haven't read the Bible in eight months, you know? I'm not saying you specifically, I'm just saying in general. 
there's something that happens when you, when you put the good stuff in. It may not happen the first time. It may not even happen the ninth time. It may not happen the hundredth time. But when you begin to just constantly fill yourself with something good, you have something to draw from. Not only that, but consider it this way. Um, when, when we're talking about the, the battle for the mind and the battle for joy and the battle for the life of the Spirit, um, think about it this way. What happens, what happens if, you, if you feed yourself on bitterness, unforgiveness, anger, strife, dissension, and quarrels for 20 years? You're 20 years old, and most of your life has been fed with bitterness, anger, strife, depression, selfishness. This is what happens. You do that for 20 years, it's like not so much of a problem. People may look at you and go, oh, that's normal. It's a normal person. They're happy. They're enjoyable. I like being with them. I like inviting them to my house. Now, you take the same person who continues to do this for another 20 years. They're 40. So now they've they've fed themselves for 40 years on bitterness, paranoia. I've been running into paranoid people everywhere. People are just gripped with fear. Every decision is made by fear. For 40 years, you've lived with bitterness, paranoia, unforgiveness, anger, strife, and quarrels. You're 40 years old. And now people look at you and go, man, he's crazy. What happened? Like, he used to be cool. Now he's crazy. No, he's always been crazy. He's been building crazy for the last 40 years. Think about it this way. When you begin to feed yourself with bitterness, anger, strife, everything that's outside of the life of the Spirit that goes on in the mind first, the secret and the hidden life that no one knows about except for you and God. By the way, he always knows. When you begin to do that, it's like you're building, it's like you're building a road. It doesn't happen overnight. It's like, it's like a tiny path. My kids, they, uh, my, we live next to my, my in-laws. And so my kids, they, they run. They have, all they have to do is run through fields to get from my house to my, to my mother-in-law's house because they like to go to grandma's house. And so they run through the fields. And you can sit on my front porch, and by this time in, the, by this time in June, you can see the footpath that's been worn from my front door across the field, through the woods, can't see it then, and then over into Rain Candies. And if you walk through the woods, River's even taken a stick, he and his brother, and they, and they go out into the woods, and when they, they, they take a stick and they just they clear out all the, all the undergrowth, you know, they beat down all the weeds, and there's a little path, okay? That's what it's like when you begin to feed yourself with bitterness, anger, and dissension, everything that's not in the life of the Spirit, you start building a road. It's not a road at the beginning. It's just a footpath. After 20 years, you've got more than a footpath. You've got a county road. After 30 years, you've got a two-lane highway. And after 40 and 50 years, what you've got is actually an interstate. Okay? It's an interstate in the mind, and it's an interstate in the heart. Can I tell you guys, when I drive to California, I don't drive the back roads. I drive the interstate. And so what happens is, after 40 and 50 years, you've developed an interstate in your mind and in your heart, and it's just too easy to get on the interstate. And when you look at that versus the thought of having to create a new road, beating out the weeds, creating a path, getting a county road, finally getting someone to pave it, creating a two-lane, and then getting an interstate, sometimes after 50 years, it's just too darn difficult. It's a really good quote from Dallas Willard. Dallas, Dallas says this, he says, God's grace is limited, but the human psyche is not. Here's what he means by that. God's ability to forgive, God's ability to show goodness towards people, God's ability to be kind, God's ability to be generous is limitless. But a person's ability to accept that while doing what they want to is not. So after 40 or 50 years, you may not be able to do anything. 
other than drive the interstate that you've been driving. Why am I getting on this? Because it's just so darn important. It gets us to verse 5. Consider it pure joy. See, everybody in the room, we've all got troubles. The battlefield right now is, the battlefield right now is for joy and it's for living a life of the Spirit. Verse 3, James says, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Here's the deal. Trials, trouble, and difficulty don't build faith. They test faith. They reveal faith. Trials, trouble, and difficulty don't build faith. It reveals faith. How many of you have ever noticed this? Um, you get in the middle of a hard moment, and your, your inclination is to reach your hand in the bucket and grab what you need, only it's not there. Yeah, see, trials, trouble, and, and difficulty, they reveal what's in the bucket. They reveal what's in our tool belt. Uh, you, you, don't, you don't go out and, and get faith in the middle of a hard time. It's, it's, it's either there or it's not. And that's what happens in, in, in when, we, when we encounter trouble and difficulty. They don't reveal faith. They don't develop faith. They, 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 they reveal it. And so some of us in the room might be thinking, well, this is really lame. It sounds like God is trying to whack me. And what's this about? Adam, you're saying that trouble is inserted into the matrix and that trouble doesn't build faith. It reveals it. And this sounds like an unfair deal altogether. Well, here's the good news. Romans says that God just, he works all things to the good of those who love him. Okay? So there's just the good news. So God didn't create the trouble, but he's really, really good at working difficult circumstances in such a way that when we agree with him, we end up getting blessed. So the outcome here in verse 3 is not bigger faith, it's endurance. Some of your translations have the word patience. Think about endurance, though. Think about, and it's the kind of patience or endurance that it takes to run a marathon. So what ends up happening is when we, when we encounter when we encounter trial and when we encounter difficulty, it reveals our faith. These times of difficulty, it builds up our endurance muscles. It's just like weight training. Cliff actually, know, Cliff actually knows more about this than I do. I, I, I do my best, but you go in, and at first you can only, you know, you can only bench press the bar. You know, that's it. And the next day you feel like you're going to die. You know. But you bench press the bar for a while, and next thing you know, you put some quarters on, you can do those. The next thing you know, you got the 45s, and then you're looking around to see, it's like, yes, dude, I am definitely doing this. And then you maybe add some more, and then you're the guy who's yelling so that everyone in the gym can see you. you know, it's, I've never been that guy. I just, I hear that guy. That's what trouble does. It, 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 increases, it increases our endurance. You might be thinking, this sounds strange. Why in the world would God do this? Why, why is it like this? Why would, why would God do this? I can't tell you everything, but here's, here's at least one take on it. God is looking for a people. God is looking for a people who don't buckle under resistance. See, it actually takes resistance to grow. And one of the things he's wanting to do is he's wanting to grow endurance. People who don't give up 
when the first door shuts. Not only that, but it's all over Jesus' words. It's just kind of hidden. Jesus says, hey guys, if you're faithful in little and insignificant things, then I'll put you in charge of large and significant things. You know? Like, what do you do when the resistance is small? Let me ask it this way. Do you want, how many of you guys would like to have um, a strength trainer or a, uh, or, a, or a coach who can't lift the bar? How many of you would pay that guy money to get you in shape? Coach can't lift the bar. He can't bench press the bar. No, no one's taking that deal, right? Yeah, see, that's the deal. The Lord wants to, the Lord, the, the Lord is, is worked it out so that we get to encounter trial and trouble and difficulty. We press on the little ones. It builds up our perseverance and our endurance. And Jesus says, you know, you get faithful in little things, I'll put you in charge of bigger things, more significant things. And eventually, you work your way into being the kind of coach that someone might want to hire to be a strength trainer. See, it's, it's the yeast working its way through the dough in me and in society. Verse 4, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, and not lacking anything. This is the really difficult part. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Trouble and difficulty is the superhighway into maturity. You know the difference between immaturity and maturity? One of the main differences, and if you've got kids, you know what I'm talking about. One of the main differences between immaturity and maturity is immaturity is defined by wanting to get out of something. Immaturity is wanting to get out of something. Maturity charges on. One of the differences between immaturity and maturity is how they handle setbacks. This is really silly, but it, it just illustrates what I'm getting at so well. Heather, um, River and I, we, we love to watch Kentucky basketball. And if Kentucky is down by even six points... It doesn't matter what, how much time is left in the game. It doesn't matter what the scenario is. It doesn't matter that all of our starters are on the bench and all the scrubs are in. It doesn't, none of that matters. He looks at me every time, dead serious, and he says, we're definitely going to lose, aren't we, Dad? Yeah. It's just the immature mind versus a more mature mind. As soon as there's any setback, River's like, oh, dude, we're definitely going down, aren't we? No, we're not going down. Just wait. You know? No, just wait. Trust me. Trust me, they're going to put in John Wall and it'll all get better. Don't worry. Except we can't do that anymore. Yeah. One of the defining differences between the mature and the immature is how, they, how we handle setbacks. And immaturity is always looking to get out of something. And the mature is saying, come on, let's just do it. Verse 5, here's what I wanted to get to. And if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. You know, one of the things we need most um, in, in this day and in this hour that we live in is we need, we need wisdom. 
See, here's the deal. We, especially, especially as Western Americans, um, we live in a culture that is um, that, that values, principally values information and knowledge. Uh, even our school systems, uh, our school systems train people to to absorb knowledge without wisdom. Um, the day that we live in is is called the information age. We just we're just we're we're all about information. We're all about data. We're all about knowledge. And one of the things that's that's really missing uh, in our society in general is is wisdom. See, knowledge is based upon facts and details and information, but wisdom is the application of information. I was listening to this really um, incredible thing on NPR this week. And uh, anybody ever, anyone here ever listened to that show called On Point with Tom Ashbrook? So good, okay? I, I'm just a fan of that guy. I love him. And he always gets on there and he's like, On Point with Tom Ashbrook. And he sounds so cool. And then he gets back to it. But anyway, um, Tom Ashbrook had, had a couple guys on this week. And they were, um, one's a historian and one is, um, one is an economist and, um, one of them's uh, the hist- well, let me put it this way the um, the historian is a guy is a British guy named Neil Ferguson, and then the economist is this guy named Paul Paul Krugman. And what they're talking about, and this was it was one of the most compelling hours of radio I've ever listened to. But both of these guys, and we're talking about intellectual to the tenth power, both guys. Okay, um, Paul Krugman has won the Nobel Prize, and I mean we're just talking. And, and Neil Ferguson is, like, right there with him. One guy teaches at Harvard. The other guy teaches at Princeton, you know? So it's like Clash of the Titans. And, what they're, what, and they're, right now they're having an ongoing debate, these two guys. And uh, the debate is centered around the economic policy of the United States and where it's going to take our country. Here's what's interesting. Both guys are forecasting massive doom and gloom, incredibly dark days on the horizon, Okay? And, and, they're, and they're saying, hey, you know, if, if, if the government and if the powers that be don't change their policy on how we, how we handle our economic, our economic responsibilities, then we are going to see incredibly dark days. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Paul Krugman says that the way out of the financial crisis that we've got ourselves in is government spending. Government needs to spend. It needs to run massive debts. It needs to, it needs to put, just pump money into the system. Yeah, it's artificial. We'll take care of it later. Let's just put money into the system. Neil Ferguson says, no, the way that you get out of a financial crisis is you cut spending. You may have to increase taxes and da-da-da-da-da. And so for an hour, these two guys debated, and I have my political preferences. I even have my economic leanings, not that I know anything, but I have preferences and I have leanings. And And as I'm listening to both of these guys, as soon as one of the guys quits talking, in my head, I'm going, dude, that guy's so right. And then the other guy would talk, and I would be like, dude, that guy's so right. <laughs> and, it go, and it went like this for an hour. Now, what's the point? Both of these guys are talking about something that is most definitely on the horizon for the United States, and not just the United States, but on the horizon for the world. And while I'm sitting in my car, this thought jumps into my brain. What we really need is wisdom. What we really need is wisdom. You know what, our, you know what our leaders really need? They need wisdom. Now, here's what I want to tell you. 
this need for wisdom isn't just the truth at the macroeconomics level, but it's also the truth at the microeconomic level of the heart. You know what you and I really need? We need wisdom. We need to pursue wisdom. When I was in college, my economics professor always said this. He says, knowledge tears things apart, but wisdom builds, builds them. He always said that he, all the time. He was always saying, wisdom builds, wisdom builds. Knowledge tears apart, wisdom builds. And it's really, really true. It's really true for you and I as well. This is where James says, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, then he should ask God. Let's just take that first little part there. If any of you lacks wisdom. And I know this is going to sound really strange, but can I tell you what the beginning of wisdom is? The beginning of wisdom is realizing that you lack wisdom. It's so weird. The beginning of being a wise person is realizing that you're not a wise person. And the Bible actually confirms this over and over again. In Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15, it says, The way of a fool seems right to him, but a wise man listens to advice. How many of you guys realize that most of the people who don't have wisdom don't realize that they don't have wisdom? How many of you have ever realized that about yourself? The way of a fool seems right to him. How many of you have ever been three quarters, in, three quarters of the way into a project, into an idea, into an argument, into a thought? You are so convinced you're right only to have it completely flipped up on its head in the last quarter and you realize, oh my gosh, I've been a giant idiot. That's me. That's me. Yeah. We need wisdom. And the first, the first step toward gaining wisdom is realizing I don't have wisdom or let me put it this way I don't know everything about everything that's the first step to gaining wisdom and because of that here's what I want to tell you in the in the scriptures and biblically speaking wisdom is positional rather than possessional I can say that wisdom is positional rather than possessional that's what James is pointing out to us biblical wisdom is realizing it begins with taking the position that I don't know everything. It's rather than being the kind of person in order for me to be wise that has it all together. On the moment that you begin to believe I'm the kind of person that has it all together is the moment that you've actually stepped outside of wisdom. So wisdom begins as position and not possession. This is what it says in Proverbs chapter ten, verse ch- chapter nine, verse ten. It says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the holy is understanding. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord. You guys know this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And in all, in all your ways, acknowledge Him and He'll make your ways straight. See, it's, it's positional rather than possessional. See, when we begin to trust in the Lord with all of our heart, you know what it really means? To trust in the Lord means to not trust in yourself. There's, there's a certain, and, and, and it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a preference and it's positional toward God. It's, it's, it's beginning to say, God, I prefer you. I prefer your ways. I prefer who you are. I prefer your thoughts. I prefer, I prefer how you do things. And God, would you begin to teach me your thoughts, your ways, and how you do life? And in that moment, you just stepped out of ignorance, foolishness, and being an idiot, and you moved into wisdom. So to be wise has nothing to do with fully being the kind of person who's fully made it. It, it. it has to do with being the kind of person who realizes 
that they haven't fully made it. And being the kind of person who realizes that they haven't fully made it is the essence of having a teachable spirit. And this is one of the things I'm always looking for. I am looking, like, here's one of the things we want to do around here at the Vineyard. We, we are desperate to make disciples. I, I just, I don't want to just do this thing where I speak 45 minutes a week and go mow my grass. I really want to make disciples. And, and what I'm looking for when I'm, when I'm trying to find people to make disciples out of, when I'm trying to find a few people to share my whole life with, teach them everything I know and turn them loose, I'm looking for someone who's teachable and who doesn't already know everything. It's not that I know everything, but I can't, I can't give the little bit I know to someone who's convinced that they already know more than me. Um, we, were, we were working on an album three years ago. We're making a new one now, too, and I'm really excited about it. It sounds good. But we were working on an album three years ago, and at the time, you know, we had been playing music together for a long time, but we had never made, we had never made an album. And we were going to spend several thousand dollars making an album. We had 10 grand put, by, put back, and we were going to spend it, and we were going to make an album. And so we hired a producer. It was a friend of mine from Atlanta, Georgia. His name is Michael Bryan. And he comes up. We do some pre-production. And what pre-production means is we take the songs, and, and he kind of, like, helps us arrange them and get parts and, you know, just get a plan sort of together. We go to the studio. We begin to track drums. That was okay. And then we begin to do, um, you know, Retracking, or that just means we, went, we began to play individual parts. So you start with the drums. It's kind of like you build a foundation. You get the drums, and someone plays the bass. Then after that, you put the guitars and maybe some piano and some organ. You sing and da-da-da. So while we're, uh, while we're tracking uh, guitars, especially for the album, guitars and bass, uh, we're working with Mike. And if you guys, and I know most of you don't know Mike O'Brien, He's the leader of the, of the Vineyard Worship Task Force for the Southeast region. He has 95 churches, and we're in his region. And so we're, we're tracking guitars with him. And Mike, you don't know Mike, but Mike is a very direct person. You guys think I'm direct? You don't know anything. I'm Teddy Bear Santa Claus compared to Mike. And um, while we're tracking guitars, it was, it was hysterical, okay? Um, and, our, and, our, and this is the way it would go. We would... He w- we'd pull the song up, we'd be w- begin to work on it, and we have our headphones on, and we're in the studio, and we're playing along, got the click track, we're moving right along, and we're writing cool guitar parts, and at one point, Glenn plays this guitar part, and Glenn's really excited about this guitar part, and he's like, hey, Mike, what do you, what do you, you know, we're done, he's like, what do you think about that guitar part? Mike leans back in his chair and goes, yeah, y- your girlfriend would probably like it. <laughs> Glenn's like, well, what are you saying? He's like, yeah, man, all the, all the 12-year-old girls are going to love that. Glenn's like, dude, are you saying this isn't good enough? Mike's like, that's what I'm saying. Do it again. <laughs> Play it through, you know. Get it done. Keep playing. Keep playing. Then I, I remember another time, Haas is playing some bass, playing the bass, and Haas gets finished tracking the bass, and Haas is like, man, Mike, what do you think about that? And Mike's like, well, here's what I think. I think if you go back and wipe the poop off that and play it again for me, I think it will be a lot better. And he's like, what do you mean? He's like, man, you're just, you're, you're, you know, you're, get up on the pads of your fingers and, and act like you know how to handle that bass. And, and on, the, on one side, if you're the kind of person who doesn't have a teachable spirit, you think, Mike, you're being a jerk. What is Mike actually wanting? He's wanting what's best, and he's trying to teach us something. And what's funny is, Mike has a direct style, okay? But the other thing was, I think, after knowing Mike a little while, he realized the kind of people that he was dealing with and he was dealing with the kind of people who were sure that they were right, and so he just hit it right in the mouth. 
It's one of the things I'm looking for. Is, it's the essence of a teachable spirit. It's the essence of a teachable spirit. It's the essence of, I don't know everything, everything yet. When, when you begin to take on that kind of heart of, I don't know everything yet, and I'm open to some new instruction, you just step right into wisdom. To the extent that you leave that, you actually end up leaving wisdom. Having a teachable heart like this, the other thing about it too is it actually builds community, okay? Here's what I mean. This is sort of an indirect way, but having a teachable spirit and a teachable heart builds community. One of the number one values of community, not just a community of believers, but any kind of community, uh, you know, a social community, a town, a social club, a family unit, um, any community. The, one of the major values of a community is that not everyone in the community has to be an expert at everything, okay? And so when everyone doesn't have to be an expert at everything, then individuals are free to specialize and become proficient at one thing, okay? I, I have learned this the, the hard way because I am, the, I am typically the kind of person who wants to do everything. I want to do it all, you know? I want to, I want to raise grapes. I want to own a store. I want to pastor a church. I want to write songs. I want to make records. I want to love my wife. I want to take my kids to the ballpark. I want to get, and one of the things I'm finding is I just can't do it all. just can't do it all. And so one of the things about having a teachable spirit and beginning to be the kind of person who leans into wisdom, it actually imparts honor and value for the community and the people who are right around you. If I have a teachable spirit, it means that I don't know everything. And not only that, I don't have to know everything. I don't have to know everything about the Bible because P. Ray knows lots more than me. You think I'm joking. I'm not. He knows way more than me. I don't have to know Greek. Dr. John knows Greek. I, I don't have to know. You know. I don't have to know how to build my house. Rust, Justin and Richard built my house. No. It's the beginning of wisdom. And so James says, if you lack wisdom, if you're the kind of person who's wise enough to know that you lack wisdom, that person should ask God. It's pretty simple. If you lack, if you lack wisdom, you should ask God. How, to pursue, how do you pursue wisdom? You pursue wisdom by pursuing God. You pursue wisdom by pursuing God. And this is where prayer kicks in. We don't talk a lot about prayer around here, but this is where prayer really kicks in you begin to just you just begin to say god i don't understand this and i need wisdom on this um i kind of referenced this at the beginning of my message but i'm still convinced after being married to heather for 11 years that this passage and this prayer is probably most of the reason that heather and i have been reasonably successful as a married as a married couple and as parents and as just as people i, I remember we got married and, and I think we were home from our honeymoon maybe two days. And I don't know, the Holy Spirit just highlighted this passage to us. And the cry of our heart for, I know, three solid years was, God, give us wisdom. We prayed it when, during difficult times when we needed wisdom. But not only that, we began to pray it even on days when we didn't need wisdom. We just began to say, God, would you give us wisdom? God, would you give us wisdom? God, would you give us wisdom? God, would you give me understanding, insight, and wisdom? We had it on... We had it on the little, we had it on the, on the night, not a nightstand, the dresser thing with the mirror. It was just put in there, you know. It was just James 
chapter 1, verse 5. It was just, it was there, and we just, we said it to each other. We prayed it together. We prayed it by ourselves. I prayed it in the shower. I prayed it on the way to work. And it was just this prayer that would never stop. God, would you give me wisdom? And I can honestly tell you there have been strategic moments in our 11 years where God has come through and he's just given us wisdom that, that we didn't have the experience to gain, if, you, if I can say it that way. See, wisdom doesn't have to come by experience alone. It comes by hearing the voice of God. And because of that, I mean, just some crazy stuff happened to me and Heather, especially in the realm of, like, business and making some stuff happen. I mean, we somehow got a $100,000 loan with no down payment, and we didn't own any property. I have no idea. But, but I just felt like it was the thing we were supposed to do, and we prayed, and the Lord, I just felt like we were like, just go get it. And the Lord told me, you know, you go, get the, you go get the loan, and I'll pay it off for you. That's what he told me. I'm like, God, I can't get a loan. I don't have any collateral. I don't have any money. I don't even have a house. I have no property. He said, you go get the loan. I'll pay it off for you. Got the loan. He's been paying it off. It's just been one of those things. If you, if you lack wisdom, you should ask. Now here, let me tell you what, what's implied here. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. Here's what James is also saying. It's implied very strongly. If you lack wisdom, you should ask God and not your crazy neighbor. <laughs> No joke, no joke. I, I see this all the time. I'm like, it's, it's so bewildering. It's like someone is going through some really, really heavy stuff, and who do they go talk to? The dude down the street who's like crazier than they are. You know, they get in my office, and I'm like, well, who have you been talking to? Well, I've been talking to them. I'm like, dude, do you not realize that they're actually more jacked up than you are? No joke. Like, people will come into my office with marriage problems. I'm like, dude, how, who have you been talking to? Well, I've been talking to the single girls, you know, at work. What? Are you kidding me? You're talking to the single girls? Yeah, all the single girls at work say I should leave him. Yeah, of course that's what they're saying. They're idiots. The number one rule. Ask the Lord. Ask the Lord. And don't go talking to your crazy neighbor down the street. Your crazy neighbor is going to tell you to leave your husband. Crazy neighbor's going to tell you, go ahead, yeah, dude, I like that car too. Just go ahead and buy it. It's only a $700 a month payment. I mean, even though you're not making the payments that you already have, just go ahead and buy it because you want it, right? You think I'm joking. None of that was joking. That was all stuff I've heard like in the last year. You think I'm joking. See, wisdom, wisdom rests with the Lord. And wisdom doesn't have to come by experience. It can come by knowing Him. And when you're asking, when you're in that place of prayer and you're asking for wisdom, one of the keys here is to expect it. Start looking for it. God tends to answer prayers. It's so crazy. He will absolutely answer you. So begin by asking God. Another thing you can do, though, is, and it's found in Proverbs. It's chapter 24, verse 6. It says, for waging war, you need guidance, and for victory, many advisors. And one of the things I've found is sometimes the voice of the Lord is found in taking counsel. But you need a little bit of wisdom in even who you're taking counsel with. Like I said, not your crazy neighbor. Find someone who's on it. Um, one of the things that we've always said at our house is, if you want to get it going on, go hang out with people who have it going on. See, David killed a giant. Everybody remembers that story, right? And then all of David's mighty men killed giants here's the deal you just you become like the people you hang out with
So you want to look critically at the people you're taking counsel with. I have a friend, and my friend was um, was working at a job, and while he was at this job, he wasn't making a lot of money, but he was really happy. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, um, some of you guys have had jobs like that. You didn't make a ton of money, but you were really, really happy. Okay, so my friend was at a job, didn't make a ton of money, but he was really happy, and his wife at the time actually made more money than him, and just because of a lot of things that were going on, and because of some of the dreams that his wife had, um, she was just utterly miserable, and the only way for his wife to hit really some of the things that she felt like she was supposed to do, the only way for her to make it was my friend was going to have to make more money, okay? He, didn't, he had no idea what to do. So he, go in, he goes in and he talks to his pastor and his, tells his pastor, he says, you know, look, I, I work at this place. I like it. I know it's not the thing I'm supposed to do forever. I like it. I just don't make very much money. My wife's really miserable. She needs to make a change. We can't make a change until I make more money. What am I supposed to do? And by the way, the job that I have now, it opens up doors for me that I feel like are a part of what I'm supposed to do. Okay? And he goes and, and he talks to this pastor. And the pastor looks, looks at him right across the table and says, dude, you've got to go. And, and my friend is like, what do you mean? He's like, no, you've got to go. You've got you to gotta quit this week. My friend's like, dude, you are freaking me out. He's like, no, seriously you got to go. It's just time for you to go. And don't worry about all those doors that have been opening up for you. You know, God's with you, and his favor is all over you. You you have more favor than almost anyone I know, and those doors are just going to remain open for you. My friend goes home, tells his wife what the plan is, and determines in his heart that he's going to go in and quit his job. On the day that he determines in his heart that he's going to go and quit his job, another, he gets a phone call from another place, and this place, out of the blue, calls him and says, hey, we're looking for somebody who can do this and this, and we think you're it. And he's like, really? And the guy says, yes, and we'd like to hire you, and we'd like to pay you this much money. And it happened to be the exact amount of money that he needed for his wife to go do the thing that he, she needed to do. What's the point? Something about taking counsel with someone. Sometimes, sometimes you take counsel with someone who has a track record of living it themselves, and they can, they can be that kick that you need to, do, to, to make it to the next, the next spot. And this is who the Lord is. This is what James says. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. This, is, this, has, this deals directly with the nature of God. God is the kind of person who gives generously to all without finding fault. He gives generously to all without finding fault. See, here's the deal. We can come to God with confidence because he's a generous giver especially when it comes to wisdom. You start asking God for wisdom, he is a generous giver. And it, the, really the best part for me in this is that he's not the kind of God who's a fault finder. So it doesn't go like this. It doesn't go like, sure, I'll give you wisdom, idiot. You know? You know? I'd love to give you wisdom, idiot. You know? I'd love to bail you out of that house payment that you bought. I'd love to bail you out of that house that you bought and you couldn't afford. Idiot. See, that's just not who the Lord is at all. He's actually generous. He's kind. He's merciful. He's patient. He's sweet. And when you begin to ask the Lord, Lord, I need wisdom, He doesn't turn on the idiot switch. 
Because it's just not who he is. Verse 6, and then we'll be done. But when he asks, the guy who asks, the woman who asks, he must believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like a wave on the sea blown and tossed by the wind. You know, if we were really being honest, most of us in the room, if we were like really honest, most of us in the room would probably have to say that we don't believe prayer does that much. I mean, I know at the beginning we would say, oh yeah, I believe in prayer, blah, blah, blah. I mean, but after, after that, when you're in the red chair in my office, we'd spend five minutes of you explaining to me how much you believe in prayer. And if we were really honest, you and I both would, would probably get down to the fact that most of us sometimes don't believe that prayer does that much. It's a huge deal, actually. It's the, reason that we, it's the reason that we value Dr. Phil more than we do the word of the Lord. It's one of the things the Lord's even, but he's beginning to change it, especially here at this church, just the way we, the way we value and anticipate prayer. It really does change things. He really is listening. And so James says, when you begin to pray and ask God for wisdom, man, you can't doubt. And here's what I want to tell you about doubting and unbelief, especially when it comes to prayer. Doubting and unbelief when it comes to prayer is a direct result of having a messed up, a messed up view of the nature of God. If you believe, if you believe that God is stingy and that he's a fault finder, it your ability to be a person of prayer. But if you believe that God is generous and that he's kind, prayer tends to happen. I'll tell you, um, show you, share one struggle with you that I've had even in the last three months. About two months ago, I realized while I'm, while I'm praying, I realized that most of my prayer life is just my anxieties being vocalized. I don't know if you, I don't know if you can get with me on this, but no, I know that the scripture says, cast your cares on him, Okay. I'm just playing my card. I know that. Put it on the table. But I began to realize that most of my began to realize that most of my prayer life was just my own anxieties being vocalized toward God. There really wasn't any there really wasn't a whole lot in the way of faith there and there really wasn't a whole lot in the way of expectation there. It was just mostly me like freaking out toward God. And um and so what I began to do and I've been doing this for about 6 months. I haven't been praying at all. Let me put it this way. I know everyone in the room just like freaked out. What? The pastor and he doesn't pray. Here's what I've been doing. I, for, the last, for the last six weeks, my prayer time has no words. Um, for the last six weeks, my prayer time is like this. I get in my office, and I, I take some time, usually, usually 15 or 20 minutes at a stretch, and, and I just I kick back in my chair. I close my eyes, put my hands out, and my prayer time begins with, with these few words. God, it's just enough to be with you. in the way and just staying connected to his presence and his and this always happens because i didn't realize how much nervous and anxiety was in there all of a sudden these nervous and anxiety thoughts start coming everything i've got to do everybody who's going crazy the 19 people who touched the panic button last week all those things start coming in and i'm tempted to pray for them and as soon as that comes i just i just push it back and i even a lot of times will vocalize no it's, it's just enough to be with you 
wait for his presence. No, it's, it's just enough to be with you. Now, lately, after six weeks of this, lately, when I've gone back to regular prayer, I've realized there's so much more expectation in my heart because I'm not playing from a place of anxiety. I'm, playing, I'm praying from a place of trust, and I'm praying from a place that, that, is, ex- that, that is experiencing his presence even in the moment. You, you want to you get out of you want to get out of the prayer of unbelief there's a couple ways you just got to get connected to the fact that God is generous and that he's not a fault finder and then maybe you need to take a month off of vocal prayer and you just need to sit before him and say God it's just enough to be with you I mean Jesus says he already knows what you're going to bring to him anyway like your prayer your prayer didn't surprise him So confidence in prayer, in prayer flows from what I believe about God. Why did I want to talk about wisdom this week? The reason I wanted to talk about pursuing wisdom is a little scripture that's been rolling around with me this week, and it comes out of Proverbs. It's Proverbs chapter 24, verse 3. That's what it says, 3 and 4. It says, By wisdom a house is built, and through understanding it is established. And through knowledge, its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. I want to read that again. By wisdom, a house is built, and through understanding, it is established. Verse 4. Through knowledge, its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. A couple things. Um, starting next week, we're, gonna, we're getting into a four-week series where we're just going to deal with the family. And we're going we're gonna to try to point out in our very best and limited way what the center looks like. And what I want to say is that in the next four weeks, uh, I'm only going to be preaching once in the next four weeks. We've got all kinds of different voices coming up here. What I want to say to the church is in the next four weeks, there's going to be all kinds of wisdom coming out. Okay? There's going to be all kinds of wisdom coming out for how to like maybe organize your home and how to... How to, how to, how to love your husband and how to treat your wife and how to how to honor your kids and and I know that it's going to change some families in here but the thing that could actually keep it from changing families is if if we if we take on the mindset of dude I've already heard all that before never mind the fact that your house is crazy but I've already heard that before I know it you know and and by wisdom a house is built and through understanding it's established through knowledge, its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. And I feel like the beginning, the beginning of, at least for us anyway, the beginning of, of, of this, this next little season where we're just going to pursue God's best for our family, the beginning of that begins, it begins this Sunday morning with us of just saying, God, I want to pursue wisdom. I want to pursue wisdom. And, and some of you guys who will be coming the next month, you think, well, I'm not married. Trust me, this is all for you. You will be one day. You know? All right. Amen? Amen. Uh, if you're on the ministry team this morning, come on up. Let's do it. While they're coming.